beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't usually do recaps as part of the introduction to a sermon, but this sermon is part of a series that I've been doing in my own congregation in Providence. And it's important that as we're going through the Gospels, we understand the things that, uh, that we're confronted with in light of what has come before and, and also what's coming after. So it's good that we get acquainted with the trajectory of the Gospel of Luke up to this point. And very briefly, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of Luke and briefly consider so far what we would have learned so far going through this Gospel about who Jesus Christ is and the nature of his ministry. And it's a good practice, too, to to try to understand these things or try to hear these things with fresh ears and see them with fresh eyes, perhaps in the way that a brand new reader of the book of Luke would, uh, would encounter these things. Hearing about Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, for the first time. How magnificent are the things that he has actually done. So, back at Christmas... We had a sermon on Jesus being taken to the temple for his dedication. And at that time, we saw that Simeon held him in his arms, knowing that this child, this very special child, was going to be the consolation for Israel. And this means that this child, this Jesus, he was the Messiah who was going to bring healing. He was going to bring restoration and comfort And not only for Israel, but also for the entire world. And then this gospel spends the next many chapters revealing how Jesus is going to do this. As Luke progresses, we we can see that Jesus can do this. He's able to do this, number one, because he's endowed with divine wisdom and understanding. We saw that episode when he was in the temple asking questions of the teachers of the law, and everybody was astounded at his understanding. So he's endowed with divine wisdom, but he's also submitting to the Father's will. He's learning what the Father's will is for him, and he's submitting wholeheartedly to it. He is the Messiah, and he has been sent by God on this mission. And we see the role of the Holy Spirit here in the ministry of Christ. He descends upon Jesus. Jesus is commissioned and equipped here with authority and power for his work. And we're promised that he will baptize us with this same spirit, the spirit who will cleanse us and unite us to himself. And so full of the spirit, Jesus preaches. And this is a fulfillment of the Old Testament, the things that the Old Testament prophets told about him. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the the prisoners, proclaim sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. And the effect of Jesus' ministry is that people come to him. People come to him for restoration. People like the sinful woman the sinful woman who poured perfume on his feet. And Jesus shows that he has authority. 
to forgive your sins. He's come to save the outcasts, the sinners, the tax collectors, Gentiles like you and me. And we see a a bit of a shift in focus there from learning what Jesus can do for us, what he offers us, the benefits of his work for each of us. We see a shift from that over to what it means to live a life that's blessed by Christ, what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, to live a life that is Christ-like also in its experiences. We're going to know rejection and, and sacrifice and discomfort, and we're going to have a kingdom-focused priority. And so the new reader of Luke, the new reader of Luke at this point here is beginning to understand the nature of the work of Christ, where his, his ministry is heading. It's heading to betrayal and finally the cross. And this is where we find ourselves this afternoon. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem for the last time with this heavy task that's placed on him. And so when we arrive at this episode in Luke, the triumphal entry, we might be scratching our heads a little bit about what that actually means. The heading in, in many Bibles uh, reads just that way. This is the triumphal entry of Jesus. And we wonder what the long-term effect of this ceremony is. Jesus arrives at Jerusalem. He comes riding on a colt. He's receiving praise and he's receiving this acclamation that he is the king of Israel. And then one week later, he's executed. He never sits on a throne. He never takes his place as the king in the royal city of Jerusalem. And so, really, the first readers might wonder with all of this, you know, what was the point? Was this actually a failure? Was something else supposed to happen that Jesus was supposed to come in as king, start acting like king, ruling as king? What's going on here? Well, we're going to see that this was absolutely not a failed attempt. Jesus did come to Jerusalem as the real king. And he is, in fact, still the king, and not only the king of Israel, but the king of the world. We're going to see why this is such an important truth, the truth that Jesus is the king over all of creation. And this is, this is really the best news that we could ever hear. He's the king over every other king. He's the greatest king that this earth could ever have. And so today we'll focus on his arrival as king. Jesus arrives as king. And we'll see three aspects of this. First, that his arrival is calculated. Second, that his arrival is praiseworthy. And third, that his arrival is opposed. So first, his arrival is calculated. Now Jesus coming to Jerusalem as king... It's a pivotal moment in his ministry. 
And I mentioned before that this isn't the first time that he's been to Jerusalem during his ministry. He's gone there for, for various feasts. He's gone to the temple to, to teach and to preach. But this time he's coming for a very special reason. And it's a very controversial uh, occasion. His, his bold arrival and then his subsequent encounter at the temple when, when the next day he drives out people who are peddling, this really is the match that ignites the conflict between him and the leaders of Israel, the Jewish leaders. And this serves, too, to propel him to the cross. But this, that isn't merely what this is about. This wasn't just to take a jab at the leaders of Israel and to, and to provoke them into crucifying him. No. This was to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies about the son of David, the coming son of David. And this was to proclaim decisively that Jesus of Nazareth is the son of God, the rightful king of Israel, the son of David. There's absolutely nothing about this occasion that's left up to chance. There's no randomness in this at all. Jesus is doing this all in accordance with the will of God. He's doing what's necessary, what's necessary in order to fulfill the scriptures, necessary for his office as the Messiah. That's a really strong theme in the gospel of Luke. It's necessity. You see that the word for necessity coming up quite often. Uh, there's a lot of attention drawn to the fact that Jesus has an understanding, the greatest understanding of what has been written about him. And so he goes about his ministry doing what is necessary in order to fulfill the scriptures and in order to accomplish the will of him who sent him. <clears throat> Bunch of examples of this. Little by little, Jesus is showing himself, fulfilling the scriptures, knowing what his role is, teaching his disciples, finally, that it is necessary for the Son of Man to be betrayed, handed over to the Gentiles to be killed, and then on the third day, to rise from the dead. And this is all by God's wonderful and ancient design that's, that's designed in order to provide salvation and forgiveness for his people and to raise up the name of his son. So Jesus is heading to Jerusalem because he understands that this is the Father's will and he submits to it. And, and it's because he loves the ones that he came to save. We can see that in Luke 9, verse, verse 51. It says, at that time, as the time approached for him to be taken up, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And then that's echoed in the first verse of our text. After Jesus said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it bears mentioning that that little word ahead, he went on ahead. It, it, usually it means you know, going in, in front of someone or, or something. But here we should take it to mean like, Something like, like onward. He journeyed onward. He forged on in his task. And we have to think about how important just that idea is. Jesus knew that his death was in Jerusalem. And he was aiming for that. 
He was aiming for his own death. You know, can, can you imagine being told beforehand where you would die? The time and place and occasion of your death. If you were told with certainty that you were going to die by falling off a cliff in Jasper National Park, you would probably avoid that place as much as you could, right? I'm not going there. I'm going to stay at all these other places that, that aren't Jasper National Park. Stay away from there because I know that's, that's where it all ends, right? Well, not Jesus. He knows that this is the place of his death, and he seeks it out because this is how our salvation is secured. He did this with his people in mind, the people whom he was going to save. So on the Mount of Olives, approaching Bethpage and Bethany, he sends out two of his disciples ahead of him. He sends them to prepare this colt, to get the colt that he's going to ride on, and he tells them exactly how this is going to go. They're going to find a colt, one that's never been ridden, and when the people ask why they're untying it, they have to say, the Lord needs it. That will be enough. That will be sufficient. And it's impossible for us to know exactly how this was all arranged. Either it was arranged perhaps by Jesus earlier with the owners of the colt. He might have known them. Jesus has been here before, and they knew that the Lord would need it someday. Or it could be that this is just Jesus' divine knowledge. The same way that Jesus knows hearts, the same way that he prophesies. Either way, these people are going to recognize Jesus as Lord, and they're going to give this cult for, for this. It was all designed, and Jesus knows how it's going to take place. It's calculated by God so that Jesus would come into the city precisely in this way. So the disciples put their, their cloaks over this cult, they put Jesus on it, and the people spread their cloaks on the road for him to travel over. And this is like the royal red carpet treatment. This would be unmistakable what's happening here. The, this is the entrance of a king. This is how David showed that he approved of Solomon, his son Solomon instead of his other sons. This is how the people treated Jehu when Jehu became king, and you can re, uh, read that account in, in Josephus, uh, in his antiquities. There are a lot of accounts like this, and this would be unmistakable. Jesus is coming in as king. And even more than that, Jesus isn't just coming as a king. Jesus is coming as the messianic king, the anointed savior that was promised in fulfillment of the prophecies. We read in Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Jews would see this, and they would recognize that this is it. Now is the time of restoration. Now is the consolation of Israel. 
restoration, healing, comfort, salvation. Jesus, very much on purpose, is doing what is necessary for the scriptures to be fulfilled about him. Zechariah 14, 4 and 5, this, the Mount of Olives, this is the place where the Messiah will show himself. Verse 37 of our text. We'll read that a moment. 19 verse 37. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So this procession is leaving the town of Bethany and Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. This is directly opposite the Temple Mount. So the temple is here. There's the Kidron Valley, and then immediately it goes up onto the Mount of Olives. So he's, he's coming down the Mount of Olives, heading straight for Jerusalem, approaching Jerusalem, and the people start praising him. This is a ceremony, a royal ceremony. And that's our second point, his arrival is praiseworthy. So these people are, are praising God, they're worshiping God, they're amazed and thankful toward God for all the miracles that they've seen Jesus do. Remember, these miracles are proof that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. We can remember when John, John the Baptist, sent messengers to Jesus, John at this time had started to have doubts about whether Jesus actually was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He, he sent a messenger to, uh, to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we seek someone else? And do you remember Jesus' answer to that? Jesus told the messengers in Luke 7 verse 22, he says, go back and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. This will be the sign that the Messiah has come. This is proof. So yes, John, I am the one that was promised. This is why the people are happy and rejoicing. The Christ, the Messiah of God, the one who would restore all things back to the way that they're supposed to be, these people are realizing that he has come in their lifetime, they're witnessing him with their own eyes. Like, can we imagine how, how wonderful that would be after so many years of waiting for the consolation of Israel? He's here. He's here. And he's entering Jerusalem as the king. This is going to be awesome. And what do they sing? What are they shouting? There are two quotes here. Quotes from the Old Testament. We actually have two of them. The first one is from Psalm 118. And we're singing a lot from Psalm 118 in the liturgy today. And that's for a very important reason. And that's because it plays a very important role in our text here. Psalm 118. This is a psalm that would be used when the king of Israel would be approaching Jerusalem, and it would be during an occasion of, of great honor, perhaps after winning a battle 
or something like that. And this king would arrive welcomed by a band of priests, a band of priests who would hail this king. King, you are blessed. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And what would happen is this king would come victorious and very thankful to God, and he would offer sacrifices, offerings at the temple. Only this time, Jesus is the king who's arriving. And the sacrifice that he's bringing to the temple is himself. He's going to Jerusalem as the king, the one king who will willingly lay down his own life for the people that he rules. He willingly, it's like voluntarily going up to the temple, walking up to the altar, climbing up on it, and just laying down and letting himself be killed. This, this is the only king who would do this. This is your king. What other king and ruler would do such a thing for you? And the second quote, maybe you can think of where it comes from. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. It sounds a little bit like what the angels announced at the birth of Jesus, right? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth toward men. This is a call, a call, a summon to, to worship the Lord because at this time he is blessing his people and he is in the midst of restoring the world. And of course, in verse 39, we see that the Pharisees, the leaders, are deeply offended by this. They think that the followers of Christ, the followers of Jesus, are way out of line. Maybe they're even blaspheming. And they tell Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop. They can't say this. What are they doing? But Jesus' answer is pretty amazing. This moment... This moment in the history of the church, in the history of the world, it's so important. Jesus' kingship is so worthy of proclamation, just like his own birth. His birth when thousands upon thousands of angels joyfully and musically announced his arrival in the flesh into the world. Creation cannot help but participate. Creation cannot help but participate. Jesus says in verse 40, if my disciples keep quiet, the stones are going to sing about this. The stones are going to cry out. This is great news, absolutely great news that Jesus is king, that he reigns. Creation should rejoice. The announcement that God through the ministry of Christ is bringing the world back to himself, asserting his rule over a fallen world is wonderful news. All things are being put back under the feet of God, under the feet of, of the King, Jesus Christ. And the, 
the opposition, that opposition, that protest by Israel's leaders, this is a tragedy for Jerusalem. And that's our last point this afternoon. Jesus' arrival is opposed. Verse 41, Jesus approaches the city and he weeps over it because he knows that Jerusalem is lost. Their rejection of him seals it. Verse 42, Jesus says, If you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, if you only knew, but now it is hidden from your eyes. If you knew what was required, if you knew what was required for you to receive the true peace of God, if you, if you only knew what I'm doing, Jerusalem, then you would love me. You would not reject me. At one point, Jesus had said to his disciples, he spoke to them about the ability to see the kingdom of God, the ability to recognize the coming of the kingdom, recognize the work of God, his presence in this world. He said, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. You see what's going on in this world. You see what the Lord is doing. But Jerusalem is blind. And so they have no such blessing from God. And that's the tragic irony here. The peace, the peace and the glory that the crowd was, was shouting and celebrating about peace in heaven, glory in the highest. We can think of Psalm 122. This is one of our favorite psalms about coming together in worship, coming to the place of God in order to worship him and thank him and, and receive his word. We sing about the beauty of Jerusalem. And our musical version is like this in, in one of the stanzas. Play, pray that Jerusalem be blessed. May peace prevail within your walls and safety in your citadels. And in the previous stanza, the reason for this, because there are set the royal thrones of David's house, and there his sons with righteous judgments rule the nations. This is the glory of that kingdom. Peace in heaven glory on the highest and may this come to jerusalem but that's not going to happen that's not going to happen with the earthly city of jerusalem no peace and glory because they reject jesus christ and they rejected him because they had this idea in their heads about what they wanted the Messiah to look like. What their Savior, the Savior and Restorer of Israel might be. And Jesus wasn't that. They hoped for and they worshipped a false Christ. A false Messiah. Right? And that's the terrible danger of, of rejecting God's word. The danger of having false doctrine. You know, sometimes we might think, you know, doctrine can be kind of stiff. And, you know, the important thing is how we conduct ourselves as, as the people of God. And, and, you know, maybe we need this much doctrine, but, but not too much 
doctrine, that's just too stiff and, and wooden. But the danger of having false doctrine, this is why we have to stay sharp with doctrine. If you have wonky ideas about Jesus Christ, about who he is, about what God is doing in this world, when we want, when we want a Jesus who affirms the things that we want, who affirms our sinful choices, a Jesus who, who, might, who would just let us do as we please, a Jesus who very conveniently pays for our sins and, and who doesn't expect a certain life to, to flow out of that, a Jesus, a Jesus who, who does all the things that, that are in our heads, well, then we, we worship a false Christ. We're not worshiping Jesus himself. And worshiping a false Jesus means that you're rejecting the real Jesus. And rejecting him is a death sentence. Nobody survives that. Your soul can't survive rejecting Jesus. We have to get this right. We have to have eyes that are opened by the Spirit of God. By the Spirit of God. So that we're able to understand what the Spirit has revealed to us about the nature, the person, the work of Jesus Christ. The things that have been revealed by the prophets and the apostles. And we must conform to that. The truth. The truth about who Jesus is. The truth is the best news possible. Truth is better than any false Christ could ever be. Whatever, whatever a counterfeit Messiah, the best ideas that we might have in our heads, whatever we can come up with, Jesus is better. And the tragic irony here, the irony here is that the Jewish leaders had said that they were afraid that Jesus, because of his profile, because of the things he was doing, they said that they were afraid that Jesus was going to provoke Rome against them, that Rome was going to destroy Israel because of Jesus. This is what they said. They're afraid of Rome, so they reject Jesus. But think about this. Their rejection of Jesus is the cause of God's judgment upon Jerusalem. And God uses the Romans to execute his judgment. In 70 AD, Jerusalem was sacked. Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. Why? Not because Jesus was, not because they accepted Jesus, but because they rejected him. Now the question is, the question for us, why is it such great news? Why is it such a big deal that Jesus was hailed as the king. Why is this huge for us? Isn't it enough that, that he's the sacrifice for our sins? For us to know that Jesus you know, went to Jerusalem and he ended up being crucified, executed, sacrificed for our sins. Why is it so great that one time, 2,000 years ago, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt? Well, it's because... This wasn't a failed attempt 
to take the throne. Jesus arrived in Jerusalem as the king, and he is the king. So this ceremony that happened on earth is almost a, a, a picture of, of what is happening ultimately in the, in the courtroom of, of heaven that Jesus is proclaimed as the king of this world. Jesus' rule is in effect right now. Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And the church, the church today, is in this blessed state of being able to enjoy the rule of King Jesus, even while this stage of history is still underway. This period, this era is not closed yet. All things are at this time in the process of being put under the feet of Jesus Christ. And someday they will be completely put there under his feet. At some point, all of creation will be renewed. All pain and suffering will be washed away. Every virus will be done away with. All of the death and the tears that, that are sources of pain you know, for us. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. All of that will be no more. But that's, that's not something that we just have to wait for. Even though all of this stuff is going on right now in our, in our lives, we're cooped up in our homes. And we can't, like this place is empty. This place is empty today. And it's horrible. We all are feeling this, right? We can't embrace each other and kiss each other on the cheek, you know? We can't welcome each other into our homes. We can't eat at each other's tables and shake each other's hands. And that's because this world is broken. This world is broken. This world needs a king like Jesus Christ. We need him. We need him. Even though we're in this stage right now. God provides that we can live through this, not just putting up with it, and not just kind of being tided over through this period of difficulty, but even in the middle of all of this, in the middle of all of this, we can have joy. We can have joy like true joy, the joy of eternal life in our hearts because we know for a fact that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. We can know for a fact that all authority in, in heaven and on earth, all authority and power on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. There's nothing that is out of his rule, even everything that's going on in this world right now. All of this is is serving what is to come. And all of this is serving the church today. This is for our benefit. This is why our 
reaction to scary things in the world is not a reaction of fear and panic and despair and just being lost. It's trust in God. And it's joy. It's joy in, in the middle of whatever he sends us. I've seen so many wonderful expressions of love and fellowship because of this pandemic, you know, where the church is going to be strengthened by this too. It's not just a blow that's two steps back, you know. It's a blow, but God is doing something. God is doing something and we're experiencing the blessing, the true and real blessing of it today, not just later, but it's today. And it's just like the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10. The Queen of Sheba comes to Jerusalem. She comes to see Solomon and, you know, to hear his wisdom. And she was amazed and overwhelmed and impressed by what she saw when Solomon was king. Not just the gold, not just the riches, and not just his, his wisdom. She saw the golden age of the kingdom of Israel. And she rejoiced that because the Lord loved his kingdom, the Lord loved his people, that righteousness and justice and fairness was reigning throughout the land. So the nations are looking at God's people and being amazed and wanting a part of it. And in the same way, today, Jesus Christ is ruling his kingdom and he's ruling it in such a way that he has cultivated a people that are impressive. Not because of gold, not because of wealth, but because of what God is doing in us and through us and for each other, the expressions that that are shown in this world. This is what the world should want. Right now is the opportunity to display the rule of Jesus Christ, to demonstrate that for the world that Jesus Christ reigns and we are his subjects and this is what life in his kingdom looks like. Show the world, our neighbors, that we are still blessed immeasurably because Jesus is the king. Give them the hope that we have. Let them see it. And we will gather together. We'll gather together. And praise the Lord for the miracles that he has done. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.